0: Thirsty? You've come to the right place to wet your whistle. It's The Liquid Lifestyle with Ryan McGarrian, a full hour of liquid refreshment. Now, here's Ryan. Alright, what's cracking, my thirsty listener? So, if the sound of my voice is flowing into your ears like a crisp glass of Fino Sherry, you know that you're riding the earth with me here at The Liquid Lifestyle on the Radio Northwest Network. And as always, I am your host and on-air bartender Ryan McGarion. and if you're joining us for the first time, this little show of mine is generally dedicated to all things liquid and delicious, along with the occasional foray into other areas of pop culture that I think you might be, that might be relevant to the lifestyle of the modern imbiber, be them right here in the city of roses, hops, and hipsters, or as you might have experienced in past episodes, parts far, far, far beyond. All right, so today the mobile studio is parked just outside of Hamlet, my little ham-noshing and cocktail and sherry-crushing oasis, oasis here in Portland's Pearl District. And I'm stoked to have the opportunity to ride shotgun with uh, a good friend and, uh, you know, someone who's really seen the width of uh, the uh, the cocktail renaissance we've been experiencing uh, throughout uh, the world over the past 10 to 15 years and I think today's uh conversation is just we're gonna bring so much cool information to light and uh I'm just happy to have Paul Clark the editor of Imbibe magazine with uh with me today and how you feeling today Paul?
1: Fantastic it's great to be here.
0: Dude thanks for making the time I mean it's uh it's feast weekend here in P-Town so I know that's why you're down here uh you and I and our friends Jake and Kate and Neil are gonna be uh talking some smack today at the portland art museum at the apertif ascending panel uh and i know you just stepped off the train that little train ride from seattle to p-town that's nice and peaceful isn't it it's fantastic you know it's really an opportunity to
1: uh come down not be staring at taillights the whole way between seattle and portland uh have a little kind of uh, mental space for yourself uh as well as have some beautiful scenery along the way
0: it is man i just uh it, folks if you're listening you haven't done that train ride between p-town and uh the emerald city seattle it is just, it's three and a half hours of, like, quiet bliss. No hands on the steering wheel. Hit the bar car, you know, get your, uh, get your AM Budweiser, whatever you need, and just, you know, watch the Puget Sound go by and uh, maybe get a little spotty internet. So, uh, so Paul, you're here in Portland, and, uh, you know, today this is just really, to me, a celebration of, of you and all the things that you've been a part of with our industry. I'd like to kind of drop back in the pocket, as they say, and just, you know, where are you from, man? Where'd you grow up? And uh, tell me about the early uh, parts of your story.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I, I grew up in, uh, in Oklahoma, in a rural community, which is really not something that you would think of for uh, winding up in, in a culinary profession, uh, but, you know, I, I grew up in a small town uh, out in the country and wound up at a certain point, you know, when I was uh, around 20 years old, discovered that I didn't have to spend the, the rest of my life in a small town, uh, so I moved to New York City and uh, went to NYU. Uh, and that kind of got cities into my veins and, and got me thinking about, um, all of the incredible things that come from urban living. And so I've spent my entire adult life in cities, uh, between New York city. I spent about 10 years there. Um, had a brief window of time in San Francisco for a while, uh, bopped around, you know, different cities here and there. And I've been in Seattle for the last 15 years, Yeah,
0: man. So, uh, from Oklahoma to the big apple to San Francisco to Seattle and, uh, have you, I mean, of the three big cities, has Seattle been your favorite?
1: You know, Seattle is now where I've been the, the longest amount of time living, uh, and I do love it. It's You know, I love the, the Pacific Northwest. It really brings something, uh, really has something uh, that, that really resonates with me. Uh, that said, I still feel like I'm home every time I'm back in New York. Um, I feel still feel uh,
0: kind of a sense of normality uh, that sweeps through me when I'm walking through Manhattan. Dude, uh, once again, we're chatting with Paul Clark, the editor of Imbibe Magazine, and, uh, you know, I want to zip straight forward because there's going to be hours worth of stuff you and I could chat about, to be sure, but, uh, you know, when did you find yourself uh, first falling in love with the, uh, the world of spirits and cocktails?
1: Well, you know, I, I first started really getting interested in it about 13 years ago. It was right after my daughter was born. Um, I started, uh, uh, you know, just kind of looking around for things that, that were interesting things and things I could work on as a writer. Um, started dabbling, kind of looking at the world of food journalism, and there are a million food journalists. Looked at wine journalism, and I knew nothing about wine. And it seemed like such a deep, deep uh, pit to, uh, to, to try to dive into. And then I came across Cocktail, just started looking at some stuff online, came across uh, names like Robert Hess, Ted Hay, or Dr. Cocktail, uh, and David Wondrich, who had just recently published uh, Esquire Drinks at that time. And I was really fortunate because I came across all of this information just within the first, you know, first few days of showing any kind of interest in it. So I found some of the greatest voices, some of the most insightful uh, work being done into cocktails at the time, and that's just lit a fire in me, just got me uh, fascinated with it, and I saw so much uh, possibility, not just from the cocktail and from a culinary perspective but from a writer's perspective there are stories to be told
0: yeah i totally agree with that and uh, yeah your path is so perfectly aligned once again with the evolution of kind of cocktails as a culinary experience here in uh, the new millennia and uh, so once it's so a drop back again just a little bit so after so and what was your major over and was writing a major or english or i you know i was i was on path to be
1: your shrink uh, i was uh, i was going to be a psychotherapist uh, that was the original goal um, but at a certain point, you know, I kind of recalibrated right after I got my degree. I thought, I'm not really sure that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. Uh, and writing had always been something that kind of appealed to me. I spent, you know, I spent my twenties, uh, you know, kind of bopping around, floating around, doing different jobs, worked in the nonprofit sector for a number of years and right around the time when I was 30, 31, uh, decided to, to go in a different direction, get back in tune with, uh, with one of those original ideas of getting back into writing and it just kind of came together.
0: That's so cool, man. Uh, it's, uh, the industry's been better for it that you've been able to apply your ability to communicate, which is, I think, one of your great strong points. And uh, so uh, that's about 2002, 2003 when you uh, kind of started to – does that sound about right when you started to kind of dive into what, what Robert and Gary and Dave and uh, so many of the other uh, great cats in our industry were doing? Absolutely, it was was, uh, early
1: 2003 that I first came across all of this and really I just spent the next two years or so uh, just kind of pursuing independent study as it were because remember, you know, in in 2003, 2004 there weren't a ton of places doing this. There were actually very few and especially once you got outside of New York or London or or San Francisco um, there were really few and far between. So a lot of it was just kind of, you know collecting old bar manuals which you could still do for a pittance at that time um, trying to track down things at the time that seemed so esoteric like rye whiskey uh, or or maraschino liqueur. I remember the first time I found a bottle of maraschino liqueur at a liquor store in Seattle. It was like the heavens had opened. I'd found something I'd been searching for for months. Um, So really it was just trying to go through some of that old stuff, recreate some of the old recipes and try to piece things together for myself so I could visualize and so I could fully understand what these kinds of things tasted like and why. I found them so fascinating and more interesting than a lot of the things I was, I was saying in, in kind of your humdrum, uh, restaurants and bars of the era.
0: Yeah. So you're a seeker, man. You're an explorer. Like it just, uh, you know, you want, you're just, you know, you're looking for discovery as so many people are specifically in the food and beverage space. And, uh, so as I recall, my first experience, uh, meeting Mr. Paul Clark was, I just remember this fella consistently holding up the end of the bar at zigzag. And if, Anybody, if any of you are uh, well-versed in what's been happening in cocktails over the past... 15 years uh, zigzag should ring a bell because it's one of the preeminent cocktail bars in the country it is where uh ben uh our friend ben and casey opened a bar really an homage to the talent of their friend murray stenson and murray arguably one of the greatest bartenders of all time was holding that bar up uh was it murray was it what what drew you to zigzag i know you said there was not a lot of options with regards to like extreme craft cocktail ism uh what specifically brought you to zigzag and 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 whatnot
1: well, you know, I'd heard about ZigZag uh, fairly early on, and I went in a couple of times. Uh, but at the time, I, I, I think I, I may not have been ready for ZigZag. Uh, you know, it was the uh, the sense of, you know, who am I? I'm a little man. I'm, I'm still figuring things out. I'm still kind of putting things together. And it was only at a certain point um, in 2005, actually, once I had started my blog, The Cockkill Chronicles, uh, I wrote something online and when it, saw it go out. And I thought I had about three readers in, in the world at the point, and I got a note from, from one of those readers and it was murray stinson saying hey i'm in seattle too come on down let's talk that is so cool man murray gosh that guy is is amazing do you know where he's working these days or is he taking a break or uh he i i haven't seen him in quite a while but i understand he is working two doors down from rob roy uh our friend anu elford's uh place in seattle uh so he's in the neighborhood and he's he's still in the business
0: yeah dude he is timeless man and he just doesn't even seem to age he always looks fit and uh Man, this guy's such a legend. Murr the Blur, man. This guy, I remember my friend Robert, who you mentioned earlier, just like, you know, telling me about this guy before I met him. Like, you know, he, he's, he had met him once and then came back several years later, and, and Murray remembered exactly what he was wearing, what he was doing. And he is the consummate, consummate bartender. I know we'll be talking... Uh, more about him uh, as we go on through the episode so uh you you know what we're uh, kind of uh, already hitting up against the bumper of the first round this conversation is going so darn quickly once again we're chatting with paul clark from imbibe magazine and uh, we'll be back in just a moment Welcome back to the Liquid Lifestyle here on a spectacular, sunny Portland late summer afternoon. And again, we're chatting with Paul Clark, the editor in chief at Imbibe Magazine, the definitive magazine for uh, craft beverage. Uh, I'd say worldwide now started uh, started here in Portland. Uh, you know, several many many years ago, and uh, it's been uh, it's been a benchmark for uh, for bringing information to light about the extreme craft that we're involved in. And uh, once again, we're chatting with uh, Paul and. Uh, at the end of the last segment uh, we were talking about zigzag 2003 2004 this was the place where you could really start to see the beginnings of the the, what would now be uh, called the cocktail renaissance and what was zigzag doing specifically Uh, we talked about murray one of the great bartenders what was it you know you walk into zigzag you spend say two three four five visits in what 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 are some what's some of your memory of what was so special about the zigzag experience
1: well things that were so special about the experience that that I didn't fully realize and didn't fully appreciate at the time uh, was the hospitality aspect of really uh, kind of divining what my reason to be there was and making sure I was happy and doing the very same thing for everybody up and down the bar. Um, You know, at the time, I was very much going in with blinders on, looking at this craft cocktail thing and looking at uh, uh, creative cocktails as well as classic cocktails. And so that was my main focus when I first went in. And and once they, you know, Murray identified that right away when when I came in and made sure that, uh, that we went through the paces together, going through uh, some of the old stuff that he had been playing with over the years, some of the stuff that I had written about on my blog or in the magazine or, or elsewhere at the time. And, uh, and that was the foundation of the conversation. That was kind of what got it going. But it was only really until a couple of years later that I realized that, you know, this is just what being a good host is about, is, is making me feel comfortable and making me want to be in that bar.
0: You were drawn in by the culinary aspect, and then the wider hospitality reality of, of a bar experience—just uh, that only Murray can provide—is uh, really kind of sucked you in, yeah.
1: Oh, absolutely, and you know, it's it's the kind of thing that, that even you know years after Murray's left Zigzag, it's still the, the kind of thing that that bar specializes in and does to perfection. You know, it still um, has you know just some of the best service that you come, that you run into in any bar, and frankly, I'll I'll still say some of the best cocktails you run into, not just in Seattle but across the country. They they nail. It. they figured it out long ago and they just do what they do best
0: yeah they sure do and uh man do you remember i mean it's always fun for me when i talk to someone like you paul like do you remember a couple of the of the cocktails mixed drinks highballs whatnot that really like lit you up and just made you absolutely see you know the the potential of a cocktail experience are there any that murray mixed do you have do you have any kind of fond memories of specific drinks that murray knocked you down with
1: Oh, man. You know, there, there were so many over the years. There was one I remember in particular. This is going back, and, and again, you may have to look at things with with context and with the experience of time, uh, but this is going back probably to 2006, 2007. Um, and by Magazine had just started coming out in 2006, and one of the first columnists, or the first columnists that we had at the time was Ted Hay, Dr. Cocktail. Uh, and, of course, Ted's, Ted's whole thing was digging through these forgotten recipes and these lost cocktail manuals and putting out recipes, putting out out ideas for people to work with and one of the ones that he put out very early on was the Boulevardier. Now you go into any craft cocktail bar and you're gonna see this drink everywhere but nobody had heard of this drink at the time and Murray was the first one where I sat down in front of the bar and he said, did you see Ted's column? Did you see Doc's column? The Boulevardier, let's give it a spin. And that was one of those where just, you know, the, the explosions going off in your head saying, this is a magnificent drink. whiskey, Campari, sweet vermouth, that's it. You know, this is amazing. Um, and there were so many over the years, but but also there was kind of a give and take early on. I remember one of my very first trips to Zigzag, uh, probably in 2005. Um, I went in and there was a favorite cocktail of mine that I I'd like to make at home, the El Presidente, which of course is an old Cuban class classic, but it was not yet in circulation, in wide circulation in the cocktail circles. Uh, and I asked Murray for one and he'd never heard of it, so we put it together uh, b- between the two of us and you know, that was one of those kind of points of conversation uh, to, to get the cocktail thing going.
0: Yeah, man, they were always so engaging and just like I like what you said about Murray, just kind of like divining what the guests want. And I remember, you know, sometimes you know he was, he's seen as such this kind of deity-like character with regards to cocktails, but I love that you walked in and sometimes he could just sense you wanted a gin and tonic or a beer. He was he yeah. his width was very authentic. He's like he wasn't stuck in one place as a bartender. Uh, you know, one day in a perfect world we'd have the University of Hospitality. Do bar from uh, from Murray Stenson, but uh, uh, it's cool that he's still tending bar and that we can still see him. So uh, at that time, you've got zigzag. Were there any who else? I mean, I was up there with you at the same time. Who who else were we? Where else were we going back then? Was there anywhere else we were going? You know, I I, back in
1: 2005, 2006, it was kind of scarce. You know, I I just didn't know of that many other places or any other places honestly uh, that were really kind of doing things that that delivered. There were places that kind of dabbled and things where you heard about it, uh, but nothing really happened or, or, or nothing on a huge scale really happened in Seattle until, uh, I would say, what, 2007 or so, which was when Vessel opened. Uh, and that was like the, the kind of the kick in the pants, not only to the, to the bar community in Seattle, but to Seattle drinkers to say, wow, there's actually something going on. This is fully a part of the whole kind of culinary character that the Northwest is into, and uh, we can get excited about this and be a part of it.
0: Yeah, and you know what? Uh, it's great you bring up Vessel because it takes a titanic Uh, character and energy to bring something like that forward in a big city like Seattle and that definitely is Jamie Boudreaux, huh?
1: absolutely you know it's it's been uh, i guess it's been about 10 years now since uh, jamie first came to seattle and opened vessel of course now uh he's at canon they just celebrated their fifth anniversary which has gone by in a flash and uh they're consistently on uh global lists of the world's best bars cons- consistently nominated tales of the cocktail and the best cocktail bars in america list uh and it really is you know i i, I happen to be in a uh, you know, a really lucky situation where, where my office is about a block and a, way, uh, block and a half away from Canon, so I can stop by uh, pretty much whenever I want and, and just kind of check in and, and see how it's going. But it really was the kind of thing that Seattle needed at the time, the kind of energy we needed at the time, and it set so many other minds in motion and so many other bartenders in Seattle and throughout the Northwest today uh, have, have drawn influence from that.
0: Yeah, and you know what? I actually want to get to so many other things today, but I do want to just kind of do a uh, 2016 in Seattle. I mean, you don't have to name them all because there's so many, but just fire out a few spots we have to see when we jump on that Amtrak going north right now with regards to uh, cocktail and spirit service.
1: Oh man, it's really metastasized in Seattle. I mean, it's hard for me to keep up uh, with everything that's going on. Uh, I mean, another one of my favorite places to go is Rumba, uh, a rum-oriented bar on Capitol Hill. They've been doing a phenomenal job and consistently well over the years um and uh you know, once you get into Ballard. Ballard is really where a lot of the excitement is going on right now. Stoneburner uh, with Eric Carlson. Eric has actually done a series of restaurants and bars around the city uh, where he's helped set up the bar programs. And then, of course, you know, right now uh, in in downtown and in the Belltown area, we have uh, the openings of one and and soon
0: to come a second place. Got to jump in real quick. That's the end of the second round. We'll be right back at you in just a moment. and welcome back to the liquid lifestyle here on the Radio Northwest Network where we are just breezing here outside of my little uh, ham and sherry drinking and ham noshing oasis Hamlet in Portland's Pearl District just off uh, the corner of uh, southwest uh, or northwest 11th and Everett and I have the uh, the joy of speaking with Paul Clark the editor of imbibe magazine today and man Paul and I have known each other for shit, about 15 years and we've uh, both had the opportunity to kind of see the width of this uh, growing cocktail renaissance and If you didn't join us in the first and second rounds, we got to, you know, learn a little bit about Paul's past. And, uh, you know... I think the most exciting part of the interview so far has been just kind of resetting Seattle and how important Seattle has been in the growth of uh, the cocktail movement and specifically talking about Zigzag and Murray Stenson, one of the great bartenders of all time. Uh, and then, uh, you know, how important Vessel was and what Jamie Boudreaux did with regards to the growth of uh, cocktail and spirit service in Seattle. And at the end of the last round, we were talking about kind of what's going on in 2016. So, you know, I know that uh, you mentioned Eric Carlson and Stoneburner and, and he's kind of had a... a a really good wide-handedness around the cocktail scene, been a really good kind of local consultant, I'd say. There's a few other names I'm going to throw out. Uh, maybe you know what they're doing, maybe you don't. Uh, a- Andrew Friedman, he's, he's, he's doing some new stuff, right? Yeah, Andrew Friedman, you know, he's, uh, he's the mind
1: behind Liberty. Uh, and they just recently celebrated an anniversary as well. And I believe he is uh, looking into a process to basically sell the bar to his employees, making an employee-owned operation, which is really kind of one of those... Uh, uh, a little bit more novel approach to it, but also a very Northwest approach in some ways, uh, in making your employees fully invested in that operation. Uh, and he has his second business, Good Citizen, uh, which hasn't opened up for cocktail service yet, but it's uh, it's another place on Capitol Hill that uh, with any luck, we'll, we'll, we'll be hearing more about it in the future
0: that's awesome and uh, yeah there's so many names you, you mentioned a new Elford. she's got Rob she's doing some other stuff too right now right yeah,
1: absolutely and then that's what I want to touch upon before the break Anu and her uh, and her husband Chris Elford, um, are in the process of opening not one but two new bars in the months to come uh, their first one is actually opening just in the next couple of uh, next couple of weeks uh, called no anchor and it's a beer bar Chris of course is a Cicerone He uh, worked in New York City worked in uh, Richmond Virginia before coming out to Seattle and so this is going to be his his uh, kind of brainchild and then planning a tiki bar, a Northwest tiki bar uh, called Navy Strength. That should be open hopefully by the end of the year or early next year.
0: Dude, I love that. And uh, we've, uh, I know that uh, Portland Cocktail, the Portland Bar Institute, they call it now, is coming right up. And there may or may not be a mashup between Hamlet and a new and some of the new ideas she's having. And uh, uh, man, Seattle's really killing it right now. Um, I tell you what, what I want to do is kind of dive in, uh, go back to what you're doing and your story. And specifically, you know, you spent the, you you became captivated with cocktails and spirit service, you know, spending the time at zigzag, doing the information, getting connected with the right people at the right time. Robert Hess, Gary Regan, on and on and on. Dave Wondrich. Tell us about your kind of definitive blog, the cocktail chronicles and, and, and how that evolved.
1: Well, I, I launched the blog in, in 2005, uh, largely as a way to, to, to kill time. Uh, I mean, I was doing a couple of things with it. I wanted to write professionally about cocktails. Nobody was really doing that at the time, with the exception of Dave Wanderj and Gary Regan uh, and, and the New York Times. You would still see a regular thing, but it wasn't the kind of thing that you saw in every newspaper and in every uh, uh, weekly magazine or monthly magazine, having some kind of cocktail application. So I wanted to launch this both to kind of form a uh, online portfolio that I could show editors. That and say, look, I actually know the topic and I know how to write, but also to kind of explore those recipes that I've been going through for the last couple of years and finding out what worked, what didn't, and just kind of have one central repository for all of that. Um, it was kind of an idle idea. I just that I'd do it for a couple of months and have a body of work and see what happens. And uh, that was a, all, about 11 years ago that I started that. And it really built up into, into something way more than, than I'd ever imagined.
0: Yeah, kind of Parlayed into your uh, your you know your gig over at Imbibe, yeah. Would you say that that your work with Cock- Cocktail Chronicles, along with your ability to uh, get around and meet people, and your passion would we, pretty big part of that, right?
1: I, I think it's certainly dovetailed. I mean, uh, at the time that I launched the Cocktail Chronicles, which was in May of 2005, uh, right about the same time Karen Foley was putting plans together to launch Imbibe magazine. And uh, it was about six months, roughly six months after I'd launched my blog, I heard about Imbibe, and uh, which hadn't started publication yet, but I drove down to, to Portland, talked to Karen, and uh, I've been writing for the magazine ever since. And for the last, uh, what, three years now, I've been the executive editor. So it's been, um, uh, it definitely did dovetail uh, together in terms of time, dovetail together in terms of content, um, and it really kind of, you know, one fed the other and, and uh, uh, gave me the kind of interest and the kind of skills I needed to really do what
0: I do it and buy. Dude, so you just sorted out on your own, you just built your kind of built your dream gig, huh? It, it, it kind of worked out that way. And it's kind of weird. Every time I look at it like that, I
1: think, you know, that's this is insane. This was, you know, it, it, in part, I thought uh, uh, when I first decided I wanted to be a cocktail writer and have that be like my career, part of it was like this self-destructive spot in my mind where I thought, you know, nobody will ever pay me to do this. This is ridiculous. Uh, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. And life has come along.
0: Man, so good. I mean, it's just it's a blessing when one's giftedness and passion align. That is the ultimate way to put greenbacks in your wallet, you know. And uh, I feel like I've had some of the same experiences, you know, when I go into bars around the world and see a bottle of Aviation, I'm like, wow, how did that? How did that man? How did that end up happening? I'm way yeah. too goofy for that stuff, and uh, so it's been really cool. I really, I really, uh, I really enjoy those experiences, though. So tell us, I mean, kind of, uh, do you remember, or do you? I mean, can you tell us a little bit why Karen uh, felt like that the uh, the world needed uh, imbibe uh, uh, magazine well you know she could answer that question
1: better than I can but I know that at the time if you think about uh, the newsstand at the time of, of food publications uh, well it was food publications or you had wine publications and a couple of you know uh, kind of beer nerd publications and that was about it the food scene was, was was just starting to kind of become white hot in the United States people were really paying a lot of attention to the food network and the cooking channel and all of that stuff going on but drinks, a lot of the time, were an afterthought. Wine was the serious thing. Everything else was just kind of, you know, a magazine would write about it at Christmas time for your for your holiday party, and that was the only thought that they ever gave to it. Um, there was that gaping hole on the newsstand where you needed something that gave serious attention to spirits and cocktails, to wine, to coffee, to beer, uh, but in a consumer-friendly way, to really find those people who wanted to drink better, who wanted to have better coffee, who wanted to make better cocktails at home, and give them the information and the news that they need uh, to get there.
0: Yeah, for sure, and and it's been a game changer. I'd argue that Imbibe, along with the internet, uh, have been two of the greatest tools to disseminate what people are doing around the world and recipes. And uh, it's uh, if you're making this a career, if you're not seeing a monthly issue of Imbibe magazine across your desk, uh, you should make that. Change away from not having it to having it immediately. But uh, once again, we were chatting with Paul Clark, the executive editor of Imbibe Magazine. And uh, so you've been doing it. You said, when did you start full time at it? Three years or five years ago? Uh,
1: I I started full time at Imbibe about three years ago. Uh, If I'm doing the math in my head correctly, it was uh, late 2013. Uh, I came in uh, temporarily during a staff transition, and things just seemed to work out. So I've stuck around ever since. And yeah, we're we're now uh, you know like entering like the third cycle that i've been doing this very annual yearly cycle and now i kind of feel like at a certain point you kind of feel like "Ah, i think i know what i'm doing by this point
0: yeah you got the hang of it and you know you are the executive editor of a craft beverage magazine what's a day what's a tuesday or a monday or a wednesday what's a day in the life of paul clark like i mean you get up what happens
1: well, you know, t- t- Tuesday t- one Tuesday is different from another. Uh, I certainly have my fair share of Tuesdays that are spent in the office, staring at a computer, or on conference calls, or things of that nature, just like so many other p- people do. But then I also th- have the Tuesdays where I'm sitting at the bar at the Floridita in Havana, Cuba, uh, drinking daiquiris uh, and uh, with, with with some of the top bartenders in the United States, and really kind of you know picking up on the techniques of what bartenders are doing. Or I'm drinking wine in uh, in France or uh, whiskey in Scotland. It's you know one, one Tuesday. Very varies uh, a lot from the next and that's part of the reason why I love doing this so much
0: dude I've sensed a uh, a feature in men's journal about world's best jobs coming up for <laughs> Mr. Paul Clark once again chatting with Paul Clark executive editor editor for imbibe magazine and I gotta ask man I mean I've never been to Cuba but I am a massive daiquiri guy as are so many craft cocktail fans how are the daiquiris at uh, La Floridita
1: you know I gotta be honest in in uh, in, in Cuba Cuba faces a lot of challenges um some of them are, are the results of the embargo. Some of them are results of living in the under the particular kind of economic model and political model that they have for so long. So, for example, things that we take for granted now in, in bars and restaurants in the United States, things like having fresh lime juice uh, or, or staff who will come come in and squeeze your limes before service, just doesn't exist. The economic model prohibits right. that kind of thing from happening. Um, so, a lot of things are still you know bottled juices. A lot of a lot of things are still premix, but. When you're sitting in the Floridita and you're seeing the bartenders working, the cantoneros, doing what they've done uh, for, for the past century, ever since Constante first really perfected the art of the daiquiri in that bar, you do get a sense that they know what they're doing, that, that they are aware of how to make these drinks and how to make these drinks the best way they possibly can. So while the first, you know, your first experience may be kind of uh, uh, something like going to the old absinthe house in uh, New Orleans where it feels kind of touristy and maybe, you know, like its best
0: days are behind it. Sorry, gotta jump in, Paul. End of the third round, we'll pick that up uh, in the beginning of the fourth round. Back at you in just a moment. And welcome back to the Liquid Lifestyle here on a, what a beautiful Portland, Saturday afternoon. It's Feast weekend, by the way, and uh, if you didn't get your tickets to Feast, they're probably sold out by now, but uh, one of the preeminent craft food and beverage festivals in the country, bringing in some of the top talent uh, chefs, bartenders, writers, editors, Uh, and today we have the opportunity, because of Feast, to be chatting with Paul Clark, the executive editor of Imbibe Magazine, and we've had tons of fun chatting with Paul throughout the first three rounds, uh, just figuring out how the heck somebody goes from uh, wanting to be a psychotherapist to uh, ending up the editor of one of the preeminent uh, craft uh, beverage magazines, and uh, and uh, we had a great time talking about Seattle and and its you know place in the in the cocktail renaissance. And uh, towards the end of the last round, we were talking about your time in Cuba and uh, in La Floridita, the cradle of the daiquiri, as people like to say. And uh, you know, while maybe not having like you said the access to the to all the kind of Fresh fruit and uh, and maybe from a cost perspective wasn't viable. Uh, it still is an incredible experience, right?
1: It's absolutely an incredible experience, and you do get the sense uh, and the knowledge that the bartenders know what they're doing. They know how to how to how to run a great bar, and even facing such limitations, how to turn out great drinks. So, uh, on the surface, you know, if we apply the same model that we do to American bars and say, "Well, is it the same thing?" No, it's not. But for what they have, what the, for the circumstances that they're working under, they run one of the best bars on the planet.
0: Oh, uh, that's so cool, man! I got to get on a, I got to get on a plane and get down there. It's uh, it's 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 got to get on the it's got to get on the calendar here pretty soon. So, uh, I know that Feast brings you here this weekend, and uh, we have the opportunity. You and I, along with uh, Jake Parrott, from friend from Washington D.C., Kate Bolton, they. Tip-top bartender here in Portland, and Neil Copeland, bartender slash uh, founder of uh, Imbue Vermouth. We have the opportunity to talk about aperitifs at the Aperitifs Ascending panel. Uh, you know, we're you know within your passion for cocktail and spirit service. When did uh, aperitifs? You know, aperitif wines, aperitif spirits uh, really start to play a larger role in your passion for what you're doing. Well, very early on when I started doing this professionally,
1: uh, I saw some interest there and saw saw some things there that, that held my attention. And it really was kind of luck. Uh, I had an assignment for Imbibe for something like the second or the third issue uh, of Imbibe in 2006 uh, on vermouth. And so I started doing some research and it just so happened that um, uh, Bacardi Martini were bringing a bunch of people to Italy uh, to visit the Martini and Rossi facility. In the vermouth production, and they invited me along. So actually, going in and seeing vermouth being made, and then proceeding on to Noir Prat facility in southern France, I came away uh, a convert uh, to, to, to aperitif wines and to vermouth, and really seeing that these were something that, that I that I loved and that I wanted to, to write more about.
0: And what do you? So for me, I think it's I find them to be an area of uh, of our of our space that I would love to see grow because I actually think. Drinking aperitif wines is probably the healthiest thing you can do with regards to uh, imbibing alcohol because, A, they're low proof. Uh, they're not going to wreck your next morning. And the complexity is just so, I think, intellectually captivating and the variety so wide. Uh, they haven't exploded in the U.S. nearly to the degree they have, obviously, in Europe. They're an integral part of the Europe European drinking experience. What do you think holds You know, vermouths, kinkinas, and, uh, you know, that ilk uh, from uh, finding more uh, success here in the States.
1: Well, we don't really have a heritage that way, the same way that they do in Europe of drinking these things. I mean, uh, the the vermouth story in the United States is largely a story of using it in cocktails. Or not using it in martinis, as the case may be. Um, So we just don't really have that kind of background, that kind of history. But we've been talking a lot about the, the cocktail renaissance over the last 10 to 15 years. And part of that is, with anything else, is maturation. We are maturing as bartenders, we're maturing as drinkers, and finding things uh, that aren't the big bombastic kinds of flavors that, that so excited us uh, in the beginning. We still love our whiskeys, and we still love our you know high proof brandies and so on, but these are things that are more delicate, more nuanced, and lower on alcohol, uh, so that there are ways that we can more fully enjoy the cocktail and the drinks experience uh, in a way that's more sustainable to ourselves and more satisfying in a lot of ways.
0: Aperitifs are for the afternoon, man. I mean I tell you what, also I think aperitifs are such a great weekday option. I think it's I think most people like to get a little uh get a little further on down the road on the weekends because they can wake up late. But yeah, I've just felt like that uh, there's, there's got to be a way to inject more aperitif ex- excitement into the American bar culture. And uh, it's really going to be on the shoulders of the modern American bartender to do that, right?
1: Absolutely. You know, if we leave it for the sommeliers to do, it's, it's not going to be the high volume thing. But bartenders understand this. They understand the flavors inherent in it. And they understand the value in it, of letting customers have something. It's a little bit lower octane, kind of a uh, liquid amuse-bouche, um, as you were, and kind of get people thinking about flavor and thinking, well, maybe I'll get a little dish to go with this. And then you have a whole kind of evening starting to play out before you at that point. Are there
0: any vermouths in particular? Uh, we'll just narrow it down to vermouths. Are there any particular vermouths you enjoy on a regular basis just to kind of... Uh at the end on a great day? Well, just recently, I've
1: really been, get, been getting into Spanish vermouths uh, like Miro or uh, La Cuesta uh, because Spanish vermouths, you know, they're, they're very much like Italian vermouths in terms of their composition and their flavor, but they're made for drinking. They're made for putting over ice with a little bit of soda.
0: Dude, this thing flew. We're at the end, man. It's uh, been so good talking to you, Paul. Once again, we were chatting with Paul Clark, editor-in-chief uh, at Imbibe Magazine. Uh, thanks for listening, folks. We'll get you next time. bye Bye-bye.